My theme for this week is how to be led by the Holy Spirit. Understanding and applying the truths it contains is essential for your success in the life of faith. By way of introduction, I need to explain certain basic facts about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Somebody commented once that in the last centuries the Holy Spirit has been the most ignored person in the church. There is a terrible dearth of knowledge and understanding of him amongst Christians even today. So I'm going to begin with some words of Jesus found in John chapter 16 verses 12 through 15. He's taking farewell of his disciples at this point and he's explaining that He's going to leave, but in his place, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to explain to them what the Holy Spirit will do and how he will minister to them and the provision that he will make for them through the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. I want to point out to you four very important facts about the Holy Spirit that emerge from those words of Jesus. First of all, and the most important, and often the least understood, is that the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus breaks the rules of grammar in the version that we have in the Greek language. In in promising the Holy Spirit, he says, When He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all the truth. Now, the Greek language has three genders masculine, feminine, and neuter. And the appropriate pronoun for each is indicated by the gender. For the masculine, he. For the feminine, she. For the neuter, it. The word for spirit in Greek, pneuma, is neuter. So the grammatically correct pronoun is it. But the laws of grammar are broken in these verses to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a he. Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So the first thing we need to understand about the Holy Spirit is that he is a person. God the Father is a person. Jesus Christ the Son is a person. And the Holy Spirit is likewise a person. And in order to be successful in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we have to learn to relate to him as a person. Second, the Holy Spirit is now the personal representative of the Godhead on earth. The Father is in heaven. Jesus, in personal presence, is in heaven at the Father's right hand. But the Spirit is on earth. And as long as the present dispensation continues, the Holy Spirit is the resident personal representative of the Godhead on earth. And we need to treat him that way. We need to treat him with the same honor that we give to the Father and to the Son. He is God. 
Third, the Holy Spirit is the sole administrator of the wealth of the Godhead. That's very important. Jesus says there, He, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Then he goes on, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So everything that the Father has, Jesus has. The Father and the Son share their total infinite wealth. But the one who reveals and interprets that which the Father and the Son have is the Holy Spirit. I've told people many times, God has a storehouse that is just full of every kind of good thing that we will ever need for time and eternity. But the one who keeps the storehouse is the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be rich in the blessings of God, you would better make friends with the keeper of the storehouse. Because if you don't relate rightly to the Holy Spirit, you can be legally entitled to the whole inheritance, but in actual fact, enjoy none of it. So bear in that in mind, if you want to access to the wealth and the blessings and the provisions of the Father and the Son, it's through the Holy Spirit that you will receive them. Then the fourth fact there is that everything the Holy Spirit does glorifies Jesus. Jesus said, He shall glorify me. That's very important because once we cease to glorify Jesus in our services, in our lives, in our speech, in our actions, the Holy Spirit withdraws. He will not give Himself He will not impart his grace and his wisdom and his power to anything that does not glorify Jesus. I remember in the local church in which I attend some time back, we had a specially blessed and anointed service. And afterwards I said to the worship leader, you know why this service was particularly anointed and particularly blessed? Because everything from beginning to end focused on Jesus and glorified him. And that pleases the Holy Spirit. And when we operate that way, then the Holy Spirit endorses us. He anoints us. He flows through us. But the moment we cease to glorify Jesus, the Holy Spirit is grieved and he withdraws and waits until we come back to our primary task of glorifying Jesus. You see, there are two essential roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives as God's children. The first is, it's through Him that we become children of God. It's through the Holy Spirit that we are born again, born from above, and become members of God's family. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice that phrase, born of the Spirit. It's by that experience that you become a child of God. There is no other way to become a child of God. The Holy Spirit comes in 
through your faith in Jesus and in the Word of God, and He imparts to you a totally new life, a spiritual life, a life which is the life of God projected through the Holy Spirit into you. Jesus says there are two kinds of birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and can ever be otherwise. And in the flesh we were born as sons of Adam, but as not as children of God. But through the new birth by the Holy Spirit, we become children of God. We become members of God's family. But we are only children. We are only babies. It's not God's purpose for us to remain permanently children. God has a plan for us to grow up into mature sons. But this is where we are again dependent on the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot grow up, we cannot mature. Paul says in Romans 8:14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The word sons there is not the same as the word children in the other passage. This means a mature son, one who's responsible, one who is in control of his life, one who knows how to act, one who has authority. How do we come to that place of maturity? Paul says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. That's the second great ministry of the Spirit in our lives as members of God's family. It's to mature us. But this only comes through one process, being led by the Spirit of God. There is no other way to maturity. And it is a continuing present tense, as is brought out by the translation which I read. We have to be continually led every day, every hour, in every situation, by the Spirit of God. That's the only way we can live as mature sons of God. The tragedy in the church today is that uncountable numbers of people who have been born again of the Spirit of God have never learned to be led by the Spirit of God. Consequently, they never achieve maturity. They always remain, in some sense, retarded spiritually. Not because the provision isn't there, but because they haven't understood how to make them, to avail themselves of the provision. The provision is to be led by the Holy Spirit. That's why, throughout my talks this week, I'm going to focus on this vital subject, how to be led by the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand this is the only way you can ever come to spiritual maturity as a true son of God by being regularly, continually led by the Holy Spirit. My theme for this week is how to be led by the Holy Spirit. Understanding and applying the truths it contains is essential for your success in the life of faith. In my introductory talk yesterday, I shared with you two essential roles of the Holy Spirit in connection with our place as children or members of the family of God. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us God's children through rebirth. Jesus said, unless a person is born again of the Holy Spirit, he can neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Through our natural birth, we become children of our natural parents, descendants of Adam. But that does not make us children of God. In order to become children of God, we have to have a spiritual rebirth, which comes through the operation of the Holy Spirit, who, on the basis of our faith in Jesus and the Word of God, 
imparts to us a totally new divine life from above, the life of God himself. And this life coming into us causes us to be born as children of God. That's the first great role of the Holy Spirit. But that only makes us children, little babies. It's not God's purpose for us to remain children or babies. God wants to make us mature sons. But this requires the second great ministry of the Holy Spirit, stated by Paul in Romans 8.14, As many as are being regularly led by the Spirit of God, they are sons, mature sons of God. So in order to mature, to grow up to maturity, out of childhood, we have to be regularly led by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we remain simply spiritually retarded. We are children of God, we're born again, but we never really enter into our full privileges, we never become mature. Now in my talk today, I'm going to dwell more fully on a fact which I touched on in my talk yesterday, but which requires much more emphasis. The Holy Spirit is a person. Let me just emphasize that. Until you learn to relate to the Holy Spirit as a person, not as an impersonal influence, not as a theological abstraction, but as a person, as real a person as God the Father and God the Son, as real a person as your husband or your wife, your father or your mother, your son or your daughter, until you learn to relate to the Holy Spirit in that way, you will not succeed in being truly led by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to look at some words of Jesus in John chapter 14 where he's explaining the role that the Holy Spirit will play in the lives of the disciples when he comes. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, in the King James Version, the word is comforter. Some translations use the word counselor. Catholic translations use the word paraclete, which is simply a transliteration of the Greek word means somebody called in alongside to help us. But whether you say comforter or helper or counselor or paraclete, this is what Jesus says about him, that he may be with you forever. And then he says that is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is to be the comforter, the counselor, the helper, the paraclete. And Jesus says that he may be with you forever. What he was saying in effect is, I've been with you just for a brief three and a half years. Now, in my personal presence, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to return to the Father, but in my place, another person will come. That word another is very important. Jesus is saying, you know that I'm a person. You know how real I've been to you as a person. As a person, I'm going. But once I've gone, then another person will come in my place. You see how he emphasizes the personality of the Holy Spirit in all that he says. So one person left when Jesus ascended to heaven. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, another person descended from heaven. But the, the fact that Jesus emphasizes here is this other person, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with us forever. And then in John 16, verse 7, Jesus goes on in the same theme, and he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, 
the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now that's an amazing statement for most Christians. You often hear Christians say something like this, well, how wonderful it would have been to be on earth in the days when Jesus was personally present with his disciples. How much more we would have learned and understood. Well, I agree, it would be wonderful. I won't deny that. But Jesus says, wonderful though that was, it's much more wonderful now he is in heaven and the Holy Spirit is on earth. He says, it's to your advantage. It's in your best interest. If I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. But if I go away, then the Father and I together will send the Comforter in my place and you'll be much better off. And the history of the book of Acts evidences that. The very moment the Holy Spirit came, the disciples had a totally new concept of the work of Jesus, of his authority, of their own standing in God, of the message that they were to preach, of the Old Testament prophets. Peter stood up immediately and began to quote the prophet Joel. I will guarantee a couple of hours earlier he wouldn't have been able to say anything about the prophet Joel. Immediate light, understanding, boldness, and authority came upon them the moment the Holy Spirit came. And as I've pointed out, and I want to keep on pointing out, Jesus always uses the pronoun he, not it going over the laws of grammar, because grammatically the word for spirit is neuter, the pronoun should be it. But always, throughout these chapters in John's Gospel, the pronoun used is he. He is a person. Listen, I just want to tell you some things that the Holy Spirit is not. He is not an impersonal influence. He is not a theological abstraction. He's not a system. He's not a set of rules. He's not an ecclesiastical hierarchy. He's not half a sentence near the end of the Apostles' Creed. He is a person. I have sometimes summed up my view of church history in this way. Nineteen centuries of trying to find a system so safe we wouldn't have to rely on the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you there is no such system. No system no theology, no theory, no hierarchy, no human ministry can take the place of the Holy Spirit. He is indispensable. Therefore, we must cultivate a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. What is the primary requirement for such a relationship? I would say it's the same as the primary requirement for all successful relationships, whether it's between parents and children, husband and wife, or friends. And the key word I would focus on would be the word sensitivity. I believe that's the most essential feature that we need to focus on in cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Just recently I was interviewed by a Christian magazine and I was asked a number of rather good questions. Right at the end they just dropped in this question about my Christian ministry experience do you have any regrets? And I paused for a few moments and then I said, yes, I regret all the times when I've not been sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And really, I think in a way, that is my deepest regret as I look back over my Christian life. If there are things I would wish to change, and certainly there are, it would be the times 
when I fail to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Finally, in my talk today, I want to emphasize one more fact, which again is of vital importance. The Holy Spirit is Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now in the New Testament, the phrase the Lord corresponds to the sacred name of God, which we normally call Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament. And it's always a name of the true God. So when, um, when Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit, he's saying the Spirit is God. He's just as much God as the Father or the Son. He's just as much Lord. If you believe in the Lordship of the Father and the Lordship of the Son, you must acknowledge the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. That's the key to true spiritual freedom. It's not a set of rules. It's not a kind of procedure. It's not clapping your hands or dancing or shouting or singing or falling on the ground or anything. It's doing what the Holy Spirit directs to do at any time. If you get set in a rut, if you view liberty as simply one kind of expression, you're not in liberty, you're in bondage. You're only in liberty when you let the Holy Spirit be Lord every moment, in every situation. The services that succeed are the ones where the Holy Spirit is allowed to be Lord from beginning to end. Let me put it this way. Jesus is Lord over the church. The Holy Spirit is Lord in the church. The Lordship of Jesus over the church is no more effective than the Lordship of the Holy Spirit in the church. Only insofar as we allow the Holy Spirit to be Lord do we actually allow Jesus to be Lord. This is true of the church and it's also true of our individual lives. In my talk yesterday, I shared with you two vitally important facts about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. This is something I've been emphasizing continually because I see that so many Christians really don't grasp this fact. God the Father is a person, Jesus Christ the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is just as much a person as the Father and the Son. And he requires that we have a personal relationship with him. I suggested yesterday that in every kind of personal relationship, if it's to be successful, there's one primary requirement, which is mutual sensitivity. The Holy Spirit, believe me, is very sensitive to us. But the relationship will not work unless we learn to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you that, normally speaking, the Holy Spirit does not act like a drill sergeant. He doesn't shout orders at us. He's very gentle. He's almost timid, in a way. We read somewhere in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah, a wind, an earthquake, and a fire passed before him. But the scripture says the Lord was not in the wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire. In all those great demonstrations of visible power, the Lord's presence was not found. And then it says there came a still, small voice. One of the modern versions says a kind of a whisper. 
and the Lord was in the whisper. That's like the Holy Spirit. So, if you're going to hear his whisper, if you're going to feel his nudge, he's not going to push you. He's just going to nudge you gently or tap you on the arm, direct your attention to something. The key to success is sensitivity. Then the second thing I said yesterday is the Holy Spirit is Lord. He is God. He is just as much Lord as the Father and the Son. And therefore, we owe Him complete submission. Just as complete as we owe to the Father and the Son, we owe to the Holy Spirit. In fact, our submission to the Father and to the Son in reality goes no further than our submission to the Spirit. We can say we are submitted to God the Father and God the Son. We can call Jesus Christ Lord, but He is actually no more Lord in our lives than the Holy Spirit's Lordship is recognized by us. Today we're going to look at the opening of the ministry of Jesus and see how strongly the Gospels emphasize His relationship to the Holy Spirit. We'll turn to John chapter 1, read verse 29, and then a few other verses following. Verse 29 describes the introduction which John the Baptist gave to Jesus. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What beautiful words. John introduced Jesus there as the Lamb of God. We'll comment on that later. Then a little further on in verses 32 through 34, John speaks again. And it says, John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove out of heaven, and he, he is the Spirit, remained upon him. Notice the two persons, he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, that's Jesus, but the one who sent me to baptize in water said to me, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you look at those verses, you find the threefold introduction of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, and the Son of God. Now, only in John's Gospel do we have the introduction of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's tremendously important. It's a glorious fact. But it's very significant that in all four Gospels, John is recorded as introducing Jesus as the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And yet for centuries the church has said so little about Jesus as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. There are very few things apart from the actual death and resurrection of Jesus which are recorded in all four Gospels. But this is one of them, that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. How did John identify him? He said, I was told that when I saw the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on him, that would be the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So we have there two pictures from the animal creation. We have Jesus represented as the Lamb, the Holy Spirit represented as the dove. What do we learn from the relationship between them? What are the characteristics that a lamb suggests to us in the light of Scripture? I would suggest there are three. Purity, meekness, and sacrifice. That is, a life laid down. Now, I want to point out to you that this is what attracts 
the dove, the Holy Spirit. He is looking for the lamb nature. That's where he's going to settle and that's where he's going to remain. He does not approve of arrogance, of self-seeking, of boastfulness, of aggressiveness. He's looking for purity, meekness, and a life laid down. The key fact in all this is not just that the dove descended on Jesus, but that the dove remained on Jesus. In all his ministry, Jesus never said or did one thing that would frighten the dove away. In the natural, the dove is a somewhat timid bird. He's easily scared. And that's true, in a sense, in the spiritual. The dove, the Holy Spirit, is timid. If we say and do things that, that he can't accept, he'll leave. He'll just take wings, fly off. The marvelous thing about Jesus is he never scared the dove. This relationship with the Holy Spirit is the key to the entire ministry of Jesus. When he spoke in his own city, in Nazareth, in the synagogue, this is what he said. Luke 4, 17-21 The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was the scripture? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. To do what? To preach good news. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. The entire ministry of Jesus, both his preaching and his ministry to the oppressed, to the sick, to the demon-possessed, was based on one thing only, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. It's a very significant fact that the New Testament does not record a single sermon Jesus preached or a single miracle he performed until the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He was our pattern. He had emptied himself of his divine majesty and power. He had made himself like us. He would taken on himself the form of a servant, the likeness of a man. But when the Holy Spirit came upon him, then the power and the purposes of God were released through him by the Holy Spirit. And it should be the same with us. And then just one other passage on this same line. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius and preached the first time the gospel message to that Gentile household, he introduced them to Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what he said in Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see, Peter again states the same thing. The whole ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, came out of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Until the Holy Spirit came upon him, he neither preached nor performed miracles. Once the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was released to minister to the needs of humanity. I always like this thought, that in this ministry of healing, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all united. The Father anointed the Son with the Spirit. 
And as children of God, God desires that He can anoint us with the same Spirit with which He anointed Jesus. Finally, let's consider briefly for a moment the things that attract or repel the dove. And they're stated, some of them, in Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit? Unwholesome words, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. All these are contrary to the nature of the Lamb. What are the things that attract the Holy Spirit? Kindness, tender-heartedness, mutual forgiveness. You see, when he doesn't find the Lamb nature, he cannot abide. The key to having the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit with us is to cultivate the nature of the Lamb. In my talk yesterday about the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, established right at the opening of his ministry, I pointed out two things. Jesus was represented by a lamb, the Spirit was represented by a dove, and the dove settled on and remained on the lamb. In other words, it's the lamb nature that attracts the dove, the Holy Spirit. And I suggested that there are perhaps three main aspects to the nature of the Lamb as portrayed in Scripture. Purity, meekness, and a sacrificial laying down of one's life. And I want to suggest to you that if you want a permanent, ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, those are the three things that you need to cultivate. Purity, meekness, and a life laid down in God's service for God and for His people. That's what attracts the dove, and that's what will cause the dove to remain on you. But angry words and jealousy and strife and arguing and self-assertiveness, those scare that timid dove away. And sometimes it takes a long while to coax him back again when we've indulged in such fleshly expressions. Today I'm going to share with you Three important results which only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. First, I want to emphasize that there is no other agent, no other power, no other person who can do for us what the Holy Spirit can do. He is absolutely unique. If we do not receive from Him, there is no one else from whom we can receive what we need. I want to go back to the Old Testament for a moment to the prophet Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 and quote some words from that prophet. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the one who led the Jewish people back from the exile in Babylon. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. Now, God rules out might and power. Might you could understand as that which you have by your nature, like talent, ability, strength, 
and power you could understand as that which you can acquire, like education and finance and social influence and other such things. But God says, neither one nor the other can do what I want done. There's only one agent in the universe who can do it, and that's the Holy Spirit. It's very significant that it was the Lord of hosts who said those words, the Lord of armies, the one who has all the might and all the power in the universe at his disposal. But that's not going to do what he wants done. So that's why God refrains from using his might and his power. Sometimes we'd like to see God really turn loose and deal with the wicked and blast them into eternity and so on. But God restrains himself because that kind of power cannot accomplish the results in you and me as God's children, which is God's number one priority. God can deal with the wicked in due course. But at the moment, his priority is dealing with his children, his people, and producing in them results which can be produced only by the Spirit of God. You see, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, three things about the Holy Spirit which I want to emphasize. He says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. That doesn't come from God. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. Those are three of the main results which God wants to produce in us through the Holy Spirit. Power, love, and a sound sound mind or sound judgment. Let's look at each of those briefly in turn. What kind of power does the Holy Spirit bestow? Well, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to his disciples just before he left them, and ascended back to heaven. In fact, this was the last sentence he spoke on earth. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And he said, don't go out and begin your ministry. Don't begin to preach until you've received this supernatural power which can come only by the Holy Spirit. Now, that was not military power. The apostles had no military power. It wasn't physical power. It wasn't intellectual power. They didn't spend a lot of time arguing and theologizing. It was a supernatural, spiritual power. And you see, the message of the gospel is totally supernatural. It centers in the record of a man who died, was three days in the tomb, was raised up from death, and was raised up to heaven. Now that is supernatural. What Jesus implies is, It's unreasonable to present message about a supernatural set of events with merely natural power, with merely natural reasoning. He said the power that you need must fit in with the message that you're commissioned to bring. The message is supernatural. The power must be supernatural. And as soon as the Holy Spirit descended, absolutely immediately, a totally new kind of supernatural power was released in Jerusalem and, according to Jesus' plan, began to spread outwards from Jerusalem to the utmost parts of the earth. So, the first thing that we need to see as imparted by the Holy Spirit 
is a different kind of power from the power that this world understands. In fact, Paul says, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. When we uh, seek to imitate the methods of the world, when we covet the kind of success that the world esteems, we are actually turning away from the real source of true spiritual success, which is a spiritual power that's of a totally different kind and can come only from the Holy Spirit, a supernatural power that exalts Jesus, produces miracles, convicts men and women of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, writes God's laws in their hearts, and brings them into a totally new kind of life. That's all that God is concerned about with his children. As I said before, God can deal with the wicked in due course, but at the moment, he's bringing up a family for himself. He's creating a people for himself. And the agent of creation is the Holy Spirit, and there is no other. Then Paul spoke also about love. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, he says this, Hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That is an amazing statement. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Not some of God's love, but just God's love. I always tell people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, you really don't need to ask for more love. What you do need to do is release the love that's already been poured out in you. In fact, to ask for more love in a certain sense is a statement of unbelief because it's all been released. The Bible says God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. He doesn't ration the Spirit out. He's so generous. Even the Spirit himself is called the free or the generous Spirit of God. There's no stinginess with God. God pours out the whole of his Spirit and the whole of his love into our hearts. Our problem is not that we don't have enough love, it's that we don't yield to the love that we have. And then the third thing of which Paul speaks there to Timothy is sound judgment or a sound mind. And I understand that to mean evaluating things as God evaluates them. I've told people many times, the greatest realist on earth today is the Holy Spirit. He's never sentimental. He's never impressed by the external. He always sees right to the heart of every situation, every person, every problem, and he tells us the exact truth about it. There's been a generation that wanted people to tell them things the way they are. Tell it like it is. I always tell those people when I minister to them, if you want anybody to tell you like it is, you want the Holy Spirit. Because he never sentimentalizes. He never exaggerates. He never pushes. He just tells it like it is. It's up to you to respond. But this is only by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So our minds have to be transformed. They have to be renewed in order that we can have this kind of judgment. And the renewing agent is the Holy Spirit. In very similar language, in Ephesians 4:23, Paul says this, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Notice, it's the spirit that must renew the mind. It's not psychology. It's not education. It's the supernatural operation of the Spirit of God that renews our mind. 
You see, God renews us from within. Religion works from without, preoccupied with externals. But God renews us from within. He renews our minds, the way we think. And when we think differently, we live differently. Our part is yielding to the Holy Spirit in every area of our lives. So let me sum up those three results again briefly. The Holy Spirit comes to do what no other power or agent or person can do to impart to us power, love, and sound judgment. And these we receive as we yield to the Holy Spirit. In my talk yesterday, I explained that the Holy Spirit can do for us what no other power can do. Specifically, He's the source of power, love, and sound judgment. Paul tells Timothy, The Lord has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and a sound judgment. God had told us previously through the prophet Zechariah that there was no other power, no other person, no other influence that could produce in us the results which God desires. He had said in Zechariah 4.6, This is the word of the Lord, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts. He has all power. He has all might. But in dealing with us, He does not use power and might because they cannot produce the results which He desires. They can only be produced by the Holy Spirit through His inward working in our hearts and lives, where He changes us and conforms us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want to speak about the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The first thing I need to say is that there is always perfect harmony between the Spirit and the Word. They never are in disagreement. There is total intimacy and complete harmony. We'll take, first of all, an example from creation. In Psalm 33, verse 6, the psalmist says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Now, where the English translation says breath, the word actually in Hebrew is spirit. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the spirit of his mouth, all their host. So the whole creation originally came into being through two agents, the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord. It's important for us to see that they operated together in perfect harmony. Neither operated without the other. And that's true in our lives today. God's results are achieved in us by His Word and by His Spirit working together. If you turn back to the original record of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we find this account. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. So there we see the Spirit of God moving or hovering like a dove over the face of the dark waters. It's interesting, I think, that the first specific person of the Godhead mentioned in Scripture is the Holy Spirit. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. In that verse we see God's Word went forth. 
he spoke the word light, and the thing light came into being. But it was not without the Spirit of God. First of all, the Spirit of God moved, prepared the way for the Word of God. Then the Word was united with the Spirit, and the Word and the Spirit together produced creation. Now, it's so important to understand this, because this is precisely how God operates in our lives, by His Word and by His Spirit, working in harmony, never the one without the other. I want to say two things about the part of the Holy Spirit in giving us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is both the author and the interpreter of the Word of God. Not merely the author, but also the interpreter. First of all, let's look at his part as author. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now that word translated there, inspired by God, is literally inbreathed by God. It's a single word. And the, the word breathed is directly related to the word for spirit. Spirit is pneuma, breathed is pneustos. They're from exactly the same root. So, what it tells us is that the Holy Spirit was the author of all Scripture. No matter who was the human writer, the Holy Spirit was the one who gave the Word, who breathed it into the writer, so that the authority behind all Scripture is the authority of the author, and the author is the Holy Spirit. Peter touches on this also in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, when he says this, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here we see that, again, prophecy, the prophetic revelation of Scripture, came from the Holy Spirit. It was never just the product of a human mind, or human thinking, or rationalization, but always behind it was the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then let's look at the part of the Holy Spirit as interpreter of Scripture. And we can read again the same words of Peter in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where he says this, Know this first of all, it's very important, first and foremost, no prophecy of the Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. None of us can approach the Scripture and say, well, this is how I understand it, this is how I interpret it. There's only one authorized interpreter, and that's the author himself. How wonderful God's provision is that he's given us the author to be the interpreter. So none of us can take a scripture and just choose our own interpretation or work it out simply by our own rationalization. The only valid interpretation of scripture is that which comes by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said about the part of the Holy Spirit in presenting the Scripture to us in John 14:26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He is the author, the teacher of Scripture. And again in John 16:13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative 
but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So always, as we come to the Word of God, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to guide us, teach us, to lead us into all the truth. And we need always to bear in mind that because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, he never contradicts himself. He never, never leads or teaches in anything that is contrary to the word which he himself gave. I like to take a little picture of a piano and a piano player. The piano is a picture of the Bible. A piano has a set number of notes, so many white keys, so many black keys. It has a keyboard. It's completely finite in a sense. That's like the Bible. It has so many books, so many chapters, so many verses, so many authors, and so on. You can pick it up in your hand and hold it. But the piano by itself is no good. It doesn't produce anything. In order to have what the piano is designed to produce, we have to have a piano player. And if a, a real piano player comes, there is no limit to what he can produce from that piano. He's not limited to ten pieces of music or a thousand pieces of music. It is literally infinite what can be produced out of that one finite musical instrument. And that's how it is with the Word of God. There is no limit to what the Holy Spirit can produce when we allow Him to play on the piano. But when we try to play the piano for ourselves, the result is just terrible. It's, it's cacophonous. It's without harmony. Only the Holy Spirit should be allowed to play on the piano of God's Word. One more thing about the Spirit and the Word. The Word is the mirror of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3:17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We've spoken on that earlier. But then Paul goes on, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now the Apostle James in his epistle tells us very clearly that one of the functions of God's Word is to be a mirror, which does not reveal to us our external appearance, but reveals to us our inner nature and being. And Paul is using the same figure here, and he says, while we are looking in the mirror of the Holy Spirit and seeing what we're really like within, then the Holy Spirit works on us to transform us into the image of what we should be as revealed in Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives us a self-image, which is not our own image, but the image of what we are in Christ. And as we continue to look in that image, the Holy Spirit transforms us into the likeness of what we see. That's why the Word of God is so important in relationship to the Spirit, because when the mirror isn't there, the Holy Spirit doesn't work. He only transforms us while we are looking at what we see in the mirror of God's Word. Once we turn away from the Word, the Holy Spirit ceases to work. But the beautiful thing is that Paul says he's transforming us from glory to glory. It's a progressive revelation of what we are in Christ into which the Holy Spirit brings us. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, visit us online at DerekPrince.org.